we are nothing if not cosmic custodians of of universal forces. I've often said that we are uh, something that I like to say is is vanguards of of higher forces, but th- this cosmic custodianship of happenings that emanate from beyond ourselves and yet work through the individual and the individual is responsible for a great deal of agency uh, in that working but whether we love or 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 hate or or are are sad everything is is a relationship to other being and um it's it's only that relationship that brings forth the emotion or the thought or or the thing or the the, the happening you see we, we can't have a happening without um something pulling that happening into being and where that happening really comes from is truly anyone's guess um we are not necessarily responsible, I don't think, for uh, all the things that we do take agency for. We did not invent um, the emotions that we have. We did not necessarily invent many of the thoughts that we have. Uh, These are born in ulterior realms, often realms that are, are, are inherited by us um, from other ideas, from other conceptions, from other cultures, from other ways of being, from past ways of being that come, you know, again, down and are, are directed towards us and impressed upon us. And we take that as some sort of relic, some sort of there's some sort of archaic nature to the things that we put into place and instantiate and, and, and um, we attempt to animate those happenings, um, those ideas, those forces as if they were dynamic and, and alive here within us you know, today when, when really they're not. We're, we are oftentimes, at least when we're acting within the realm of conception, we're oftentimes trying to actualize an old idea or an old way of being, an old way of doing that doesn't really fit the modern, uh, well, and by modern, I mean the contemporary, the the here and now uh, uh, event or, or action that, that's, that's literally unfolding right before us. So we attempt to, to put, to put into, um, place a, a worldview that we had previously held and and fit that very very square peg into the round hole of the present and um, this is this is how we operate um, with our, our daily lives period this is how our our our, our memory and, and, it, and it's very useful don't don't get us wrong it is very very useful um, this is how we are able to, you know, put our socks on in the morning and drive a car and know who our spouse, you know, is and what our jobs are and, 
and all of these things that are very and how to gather food all, all these things that are very very important to to our our survival to our day-to-day being and yet at a certain point uh they outlive and outlast their usefulness and we need to shed and discard them and sort of die to to that happening sort sort of um become a ghost to or or, or phantomize uh this 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 old happening you know you know regulate it to this again other column this sort of archived column that uh, it, it, within our memory banks, within our within our, our own ways of being, that um, really sort of puts a lid on um, the ways of the past and allows us to experience things freshly and anew. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's a it is a very difficult thing to do because it calls for us to be completely new and and reinvented beings almost on a momental basis at at every moment yet this is this is very much what eastern cultures uh, at least in their philosophies anyways espouse for us um, as human beings to 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 do um uh, it, it it is it does have its its worth and yet at the same time uh there is merit and a certain again biological uh function and and reason for um, the way that our, our minds currently work. Though again, the problem is that we get so deeply patterned, so deeply uh, uh, kind of ingrained into that way of being that um, we get very comfortable with it. And then there's this rigidity that that petrifies within our own minds, within our own beings, um, and we become uh, these creatures of of pattern and, and habit in the worst possible of ways, and um, that kind of of habituation um, really does a disservice and damage to our capacity to uh, experience. Because, of course, if you're bogged down by a, a certain paradigm, a certain viewpoint, then you are going to always and, and forever be uh, beholden and enslaved by that paradigm, by that viewpoint. So much so that you won't be able to see those new ships on the horizon if, in fact, they uh, decide to beach on your shores. In fact, there's some, uh, in my opinion, maybe academically questionable um, scholarly work out there, but it is out there that that says that uh, the Native Americans uh, were unable to see um, some of the initial convoys that uh, the the ships, the convoy ships that uh, arrived off of uh, their the coasts of their shores. Initially, because they had never seen a ship l- like that before, and and their their minds couldn't process it. I I don't know. I, I, again, the validity of that is loose, and the academic research, again, in my opinion, on that is um, again questionable. But uh, maybe <laughs> I, I the the concept makes 
sense. The idea of it um, does make sense. I don't know biologically that um, that that lines up, but but uh, regardless, the point is well taken. Is that we have to be stripped down uh, so naked, so conscientiously naked that uh, we are able to experience anything. You're truly any that we are open to any conscious experience. This is part of the workings of um, what I've, again, uh, is loose, loosely accepted academic work uh, in the realms of uh, psychedelics uh, that they do allow for a kind of uh, reawakening and opening of the mind that is is previously is is unavailable to us uh, within again that uh, those are the margins of our own day to day conscious minds that that rigidity that uh, we've just kind of kind of complacently um, accepted given you know the the ways that our our minds um, work, which I think is mostly probably uh, attributed to the sort of biological need to sustain itself, to sustain the physical being. Uh, the mind is is often um, enslaved to the the physical body, um, and uh, will do whatever the the biological impulses uh, instruct it to. Uh, and that's not a critique. That's just sort of uh, an observation of, of how we we live our lives and go about our, our kind of day to day. That all said, uh, there is something probably to the, to be said about the way that um, our bodies might function and and our minds might. Uh, be free to function if we kind of had this um, <laughs> almost like neo-Cartesian, uh, like post-modern Cartesian like view of a mind-body separation where we were able to, uh, uh, and I'm not advocating Cartesianism whatsoever, um, uh, at least not in the, in, in the traditional way. Um, but maybe if we, again, were uh, able to kind of understand that the mind and the body really very much of course work together and yet at the same time are um slightly uh well there are entities that absolutely do work together and work to serve one another and yet at the same time um uh, sometimes have different aims um and certainly the mind could have this very liberating effect on the body if uh, we allowed it to, to, to sort of roam freely um, and, again, not be completely enslaved by, by the impulses uh, of the body. If we were able to get beyond those biological urges, the mind might be able to, in this kind of roundabout fashion, um, actually bring the body to to a higher state just by um, not necessarily disobeying but but really not strictly being beholden to again those those impulses of of the body um, 
And we see evidences of this happening uh, all throughout current humanity and human history. And I suppose it's sort of a, the way that one looks at it is that, you know, we see um, sort of the ascetics, uh, many, many monks, many denominations of, of folks who uh, attempt to train their mind so much so that it has a mastery over its body. And then that body can do amazing things like uh, the monk who can meditate and get his or her heart rate down to you know, 20 beats a minute or something. Or magician who can hold her breath for 10 minutes or whatever the case might be. Um, so there is this capacity that we have as, as human beings to potentially dictate our own experience once we get to a certain level. However, this is tangential to uh, the original point of us being, we as human beings being, again, vanguards to higher forces. And that it is always the relation that will determine who we are and how we go about um, within that experience, how we react to what's happening around us. All of these things are, are um, all about the relationship. The best examples, the most common ones I use are, it's not that smallpox uh, is necessarily the problem. Of course, uh, today, smallpox doesn't affect us whatsoever, right? And yet, it is responsible, at least as history tells us, for wiping out entire swaths of civilization, entire, complete, t hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Um, and yet today, it's completely and totally ineffectual on us. It's not, it's not that smallpox doesn't affect our constitution. It's, it's that we have come up with a way to deal with it. We've come up with uh, a, you know, a cure for it. We're not immune to it. Um, but we, through modern medicine, have made ourselves uh, impervious to it, right? So uh, it, the, the, the same thing can be said of um, a word, right? It, it's not that it's the word that necessarily affects us. It's our relationship to the word. It's our understanding of the word, even though the word is um, definitely more in the conceptual realm. It's more in the metaphysical realm, of course, but it's, it's not that it's the thing itself, the, the physical thing that, um, that has an impact on us. It's the relationship that we have to that thing. If we are an English speaker, then uh, the phrase, you know, I hate you, uh, coming from someone might really have this very negative or, or profound impact on us one way or another. Um, if somebody, if we're, uh, you know, only speak Swahili and uh, an English speaker says, I hate you, uh, the, the person who, who only understands the Swahili language, I mean, 
that person is it's going to have no effect on them. So it's it's the same happening and yet uh, the same physical happening anyways, and yet uh, it's the relation that that is of on, the only importance. And this just underscores why it is that our education, that the cultivation of our own consciousness is so completely and totally important. Because, and I've said this for a long time, and this is why, basically, uh, we've, we've started Middle Tree and continue to, to go on with Middle Tree's mission, is that I don't think that there is any problem that we currently endure as a society that can't be solved if we didn't have the proper education, just in the same way that I don't think that there is a problem out there that we're currently enduring um, that wasn't caused by a lack of education. It's Again, it's not the smallpox that, that necessarily kill us. It's that we don't have an understanding of, of how to cure it. It's not that wars kill us. It's that we don't have an understanding that uh, they are completely and totally unnecessary in today's day and age. Now, all that said, I, I can completely understand why our impulse is to go to war, is to protect ourselves. We want to say, uh, well, it, it's, it's a, again, a very base and biological urge. It is um, to ensure the survival of, of our own selves of our own egos um but what if we had a and i don't mean to get too oodly doodly and airy fairy about all of this but uh if we had a different orientation about our own selves a, a different understanding about who we were as individuals maybe a different viewpoint about uh how we as individuals related to one another and maybe that we weren't so individual per se quote or quote unquote individual uh i think that we would have a, a completely different perspective on what nationalism is uh, if there would be anything such as nationalism at all uh, of what patriotism is if there would be such a such an idea in the first place of Again, what it is to be an individual. I, I would be very interested to see um, as a thought experiment, maybe, or as a sort of some sort of creative short story about uh, a, a culture, a society uh, that bred individuals um, kind of almost in the way that it, it appears that ants kind of view themselves or don't view themselves at all. They, they simply almost seem to operate as a singular organism. They will uh, unflinchingly sacrifice themselves uh, for the quote-unquote, quote as we conceive of it anyways, good or betterment of the entirety of its, its pod or its, I'm not sure what they call it in ant terms, but... Um, um, but of, of its, its particular, you know, little ant tribe there, um, uh, it has no regard for the individual, only regard for the, the larger continuation and betterment, again, quote unquote betterment, of uh, the survival really of, of, uh, the, the rest of its colony. 
but we as humans um, have, a, again, a similar impulse, and yet it, it tends to operate and um, kind of play out in a very, very different way. Uh, individual, even though we do very much operate uh, on a grander scale as this very nationalistic um, kind of unified, again, patriotic movement. At the same time, individuality does seep through. And I believe, I don't believe, I, I know that this is the poison of conceptualization within our consciousness. It is the absolute idea or ideas that we have about not only ourselves, but the world around us. And here it is, our relation to that world, our relationship to phenomena, our relationship to the universe, and where we see ourselves, uh, how we see ourselves playing a part, and where we see ourselves within that larger scheme. And I, I think that our egos have to, um, in a kind of primitive sense, have to see themselves as central to this entire story. Uh, otherwise, there, the chance of, of our own individual you know, survival would be uh, next to nothing and there would be no perpetuation. So I guess almost at this, uh, in one instance, there's this kind of uh, self-serving happening that, that is behind our own egoism. And yet at the other, uh, if you wanted to kind of take a step back from it all, you could say on the other, on the other end of it, you could say that, well, uh, there's this self-perpetuation that is actually at the center of this, that our egos, uh, again, centralize themselves uh, so that they can perpetuate themselves so as to perpetuate the rest of the species. Um, I, I don't know that there's any right way to actually view all of that. I'm sure it all kind of comes into account. And whether it is misguided or not, that's the way of it. Um, our contention is that things unfold within consciousness as they are supposed to. And that is not a fatalistic statement. The contention is that consciousness exists and has set itself up, at least in this dimension, in this realm, so that it is capable of observing itself. This is the point of linear time. It is the reason that we experience things in the progressions uh, and in the transactional kind of continual continuation of uh, circumstance that we do from A to B to B to C to C to D and so on and so forth so that we are able within this linear sequence and within this momentalism to 
truly understand and experience and work out and completely and totally with every facet and fiber of our beings, both physically and metaphysically, have an experience. Um, and and not only have that, we, we are forced to live out that experience, uh, again, with every fiber of our beings. And it's a great way for consciousness to come to understand itself on every conceivable level, metaphysically and physically. And I do believe, and I don't have a ton of beliefs, I don't think, um, and this is an inference, it really is, I'll, I'll admit to that, because I, I truly don't know, but I, I, I believe that that is the point to experiencing time as as a linear sequence it 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 seems to me that um and i've said this often because i i know what my own speech patterns are like is that i am very very infrequently uh speaking from this kind of knowledge base that i have this this preconception of things that i have which I think in one way is, hey, we were talking about this earlier about being able to expose ourselves to sort of new ways of, of comprehending things and experiencing things. And this is very much how I have observed my, my mind to work, especially when I speak. I really and truly, and when I act for, for that matter, I really and truly don't conceive of the thing or the word, or or the contention, or the the subject, or, or whatever it is they are that I'm that I'm trying to articulate or convey, um, or I, I guess on another degree, uh, uh, take in through experience. I I I have very little um, preconceptions about uh, what it is again that I'm saying or doing, which in one way makes me, I guess, very Zen-like, I suppose. And that's not trying to say it's good or bad, but it's just sort of very momentalist and, and what it is. And in another way, it makes me completely and totally unclever (laughs) and completely and totally, uh, uh, in many circles and regards, uh, just all not very, you know, smart, for lack of a better, uh, clever way of, of putting all of that, right? Uh, comparatively, yeah, my mind certainly does not fire uh, with the, the sort of uh, RPMs that so many high-minded kind of well-lubed uh, uh, minds are, are able to, to process these analytical processing analyzing beautiful amazing minds many of which i have actually <laughs> taken a quite a bit of time and energy to rally against uh maybe in preservation of of you know my own ego i i don't know uh i that's probably something to explore in another dictation if unless i tangentially go off on it you know here in a few minutes which is what i i never know about these of course because it's a self-discovery and that's, but that's what I, I love about doing this is it is so introspective, but it, and yet it forces 
me, the, the, the individual. And I, I often say we, I mean, I almost always say we, because I, again, as I've said many, many times is that I don't truly believe in, in the, I, again, another belief, don't believe in the quote unquote, I of the ego. Cause there, there truly is no such thing. And I don't mean to get again, airy fairy or metaphysical on, or, or, you know, pseudo spiritual on this, but, but the we is is such a better um more prominent kind of uh, of of word to use uh in in this sort of context because well, precisely because there is no uh singular self that puts all this into play i as a singular ego extract and extrapolate from so many things that have come before me and are currently uh, in front of me uh, that, that there, there's no real thing that, that ironically enough, quote unquote, I can point to and say uh, that it is me producing or me experiencing. Or So this is why I often turn to we, but at the same, again, to digress, I do believe that these um, introspections, that these reflections force us collectively, the speaker, the observer, and the observed, as Karish Bernardi might say it, uh, the, the, the speaker and the spoken to, the conduit and the vanguard to kind of have this experience together and to process that experience, um, to fully take it in and see it in a sequence that that individual or that joint reciprocal um, consciousness or, again, participation with, <laughs> uh, I, we, we've called it quiescence. Uh, in in a philosophical war, um, core meaning with or or being, and essence meaning or e s c e n c uh, meaning um, precisely that the the essence or or the 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 actualization of so that uh, core essence core essence is a a made up word. Um, through a philosophical war, but but uh, again, it has a, a an actual uh, etymological kind of backbone there. Uh, in that, um, we, we we've just taken a couple of, of syllables and a couple of phrase phraseologies and just sort of combined them. But that word quiescence means to to simply be with, and it, again, if the quote-unquote I uh, can have some, to bring it back uh, slightly full circle anyways, have some agency uh, and take some, some authority, some responsibility, some authority, and look at this in a way that... And... Again, it's it's ironic here as I simply observe the processing of 
my own mind. And that's truly what I'm doing with these the pauses. This is all organic, happening in real time. And I think it's such an important exercise to truly and candidly uh, scribe and and just just kind of be your own secretary and, and note the happenings of your own mind um, without bias, without prehension, without judgment, just to observe one's own mind is potentially the most difficult, but also potentially the most useful happening within consciousness because that mere observation of sort of takes one out of one's self. And yet if we can extrapolate or if we can sort of stand outside of our own minds, we can see very, very, very clearly that what is going on is necessary, again, to the point we were making just a moment ago, that we have to go through this process in order to fully saturate and to understand the very workings of our minds. And it's all there and it's all very clear if we just let it happen. And yet, at the same time, we are often very, very impatient and want to get to some place before we're ready, whether that place be an understanding, a comprehension, a, well, just a, a general, a, 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 a general resolution, whether that resolution be something, you know, again, conscientiously or material or physical or phenomenological, it doesn't matter. We want to have a resolve, and yet within the realm of phenomena and being and, and consciousness for that matter, there is only resolve through observation. And the observation can only come when we step back and realize that the monologue that happens within our minds is something that truly can be observed. And through that observation, we can then sort of come to have an understanding of our minds, the, the way that our minds work, the way that our consciousness processes phenomena, the way that we process the, the happenings that take place and unfold before us, and intimately see, passionately see, uh, how that affects us. And how that, to, or sort of again, bring it at least halfway back to the, to the full circle, if not all the way back, how that brings 
brings forth our relationships, not only to the phenomena, that exterior realm, but our interior realm. And again, our lives are relational. Our, Our being, probably better put, is our being because what we comprehend is life um so far as we are able to discern it is very much contingent is it hinges almost squarely so far again as we have the language to describe it lives or life quote unquote hinges very much on this biological happening and i'm not sure eh, I'm not sure that life, again, that word quote-unquote life is accurate. I think that we need to move more towards quote-unquote consciousness. I think that we need to understand how consciousness works ahead of, again, more how life quote-unquote works. Uh, Because the the two are, I believe, quasi-inextricable. if not completely and totally inextricable. Um, I, I, I hesitate and I'm trying to cover my bases because uh, we know so little about consciousness that it's, uh, it, it's something that we can't even speak of accurately at this point. But anyway, suffice it to say that our lives, our consciousness is contingent upon the relation or its own relation to itself. And that relation to itself determines all other things. Consciousness is only what it contains. And those th- the things within its container are related to all the other things within its container, even if that container appears external. There is nothing external to consciousness.